And uh, this series uh, will be kind of a reminder of some of the stories that maybe you heard at Sunday school. Right? But if you were like me and didn't have a chance to really grow up in the church, maybe these are stories that you maybe had questions about. You, like, you heard about these things in the Bible, maybe from references in society or things like this, but I've always kind of wondered. And so last week we talked about Adam and Eve, and today we get to talk about the Tower of Babel. It's fascinating stuff. Before we do that, however, we always want to get God's word into our heart. And so this is our memory verse for today, and it comes to us from Proverbs 11.1. 1. Why did we choose it? Because if the people at Babel knew this, it would have saved humanity a lot of problems. So let's memorize it ourselves so we can save ourselves from babbly problems. Here we go. It says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. You know what a powerful passage that is? When oftentimes in life, we think when it's just us that has it, right? That we're going to do things on our own. Oftentimes it leads us into big problems. And that's really what happened here at, at Babel. Uh, when humanity uh, tried to do this on our own, outside of what God wanted, uh, there was a, a level of disgrace. But the scriptures tell us that with humility, and humility is not feeling bad about ourselves, thinking poorly, it's just thinking rightly about ourselves. So humility, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so we need to begin with this humility of saying, you know what, we are not God, and it's actually probably, actually it's very good that we're not God. And, uh, but when we start there and saying that God is God, then we have uh, a lot of wisdom begin starting there, and we can make better decisions in our life. So we'll talk about the Tower of Babel. This was kind of an anomaly story for me. It's not one that I spent a lot of time on in Bible college. So when I began doing my study for this, I was really amazed at how much was more to the story than I thought. It's actually a real brief portion in Scripture. But it really is one of the most misunderstood stories in Scripture. Not that it's hard to interpret. It's very simple to interpret. It's just one that most people, because it's so short, they think they've heard it. And we draw, I think, the wrong conclusions of it. Yes, this definitely is a story about one of the most key events in human history. It does do things like it it, uh, explains language and things like this. But at its heart, it's really a story of rebellion and consequence. This story explains the nature of sin. It talks about the power and the mercy of God. It talks about the origin of languages, which is kind of interesting. But it also talks about the cause of diversity and the need for that and culture. And really, then, it also talks about the, the heart of disunity. And where it's what's there. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to grab one of those because it's always best when we study the Bible to have one. And you'll want to uh, go to Genesis 11. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. You're welcome to, to use them. And if you need a new Bible, welcome to take one. Uh, our compliments. But uh, if you have one of ours, it's on page 7. So it's real early on in the story. And so uh, as you're turning there, just give you a little context. God made Adam and Eve. That's what we talked about last week. That was Genesis 1-2, right? And he makes them. And then what happens is humans rebel. That's chapter 3. And so now we have problems. And all of humanity begins rebelling with them. And then it just doesn't get any better. In fact, from the very first family, humanity was at war. And not just with God, but with each other. Adam and Eve had these two sons, Cain and Abel. And one of them murdered the other one. That's how we started. I mean, you think your family's dysfunctional, right? <laughs> that's bad. And that's how we started. But luckily, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And one of them was named Seth. And Seth ends up having other kids. And, and he's got this godly lineage while the rest of the world kind of falling apart. And so uh, eventually, one of those children, one of those great descendants of of Seth was a guy named Noah. And we read about him as we get uh, down into chapter 6. Now, 
Between chapters 3 and 6, you see the default of humanity and how deep the depravity goes. As Seth's lineage tries to hold on to faith, the rest of the world gets worse and worse and worse. Gets filled with violence. It comes to the point where the scripture says that all the thoughts of people are sinful all of the time. And so humanity falls. And so God takes this, he waits to the very end, and there is just, there is just one righteous man left on earth named Noah. He waits to the very end. If he waits one more generation, chances are no more righteous people. And God, in his great mercy, he gives humanity the longest running chances he could. And then he couldn't wait any longer. And so he says, Noah, build an ark. I'm going to send a flood. And what does he do? He wipes out all of corrupt society. He gives humanity a fresh start. That is a fascinating thing. But not only does he give humanity a fresh start, but he does something else. He shortens the lifespan of people. And people before the flood lived a really long time, which gave us a long time to get more and more and more depraved. And so he shortens it down. And he also, in the flood, reminds humanity of his authority. Nothing like a big, giant catastrophe, you know, an apocalyptic flood, to remind people that we're not in charge. And so he runs us of his authority and he gives the world a fresh chance. Now, have you ever wondered, have you ever been so frustrated with the state of the world and you're like, God, I'm so angry with the way things are. It'd be so much nicer if all the bad people, you could just kill them and we'll just start with all the righteous people and then society will work. Have you ever thought that? Well, he did it once and it doesn't work. (laughs) And we learned that. But there were eight survivors from the flood. There was Noah and his wife and then their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And their, and their wives. And so we have, start with a world with eight people. And, uh, and so we get to that in, in chapters uh, 6, 7, and, and 8. And, and then we get to uh, really chapter 9 where we find out uh, what happens to humanity from then. See, after the flood, uh, God gave us a few important instructions. A couple rules. He says, uh, this is what I want you to do. I'll give you a fresh start. I want you to respect me. That's the first rule that he gives us. Respect him. Because the world forgot to respect God and we became completely depraved. And he says, if you want to not go there again, start with this, respect me. Respect God. The second thing he says, respect one another. So the world was filled with violence before that and God abhorred it. That was not the way he designed it. So he says, I want you to get another chart. Respect one another. And then he's the third thing he says, respect life. I saved life, he says. I gave you an ark. I saved life, so respect it. And there are things that we're supposed to do to respect life. And then, finally, he says, this is a great thing. He says, now fill the earth and prosper. He says, go be successful. This is a good God. He gives us a fresh chance. Even though we were depraved as people, he gives us a brand new chance in a brand new world with all the, I mean, all the wicked society is wiped out. We have the best chance of success. And then we get into to chapter 9, and we read, what do, what do people do? How do we go forward in this new, fresh slate? How do we move ahead? Well, chapter 9, verse 20, we find out that Noah, he, he plants a, a vineyard, and then he gets drunk. Which, you know, if you just survived a, a catastrophe and lived a year on an ark, we maybe would understand, but it still wasn't good. And then how does his family respond well his son ham sees his dad really drunk like naked drunk and sees him and starts making fun of him and says to his other brothers come here so they could ridicule their dad and they said no we're not going to do that so shem and japheth they they cover their dad up and honor him and and noah finds out about this and remembers it and later on in his life he ends up uh, 
giving was called blessings and curses and things like the heritage, but it was really a prophecy about what would happen with these boys. Well, Ham wasn't mentioned. Most likely, Ham was already deceased by this point. And so Noah doesn't even talk about Ham, but he talks about Ham's youngest son and Canaan. And so he makes his prediction. First thing he says to Canaan, he says this. He says, Canaan, uh, you're going to be cursed. In fact, you're going to be so cursed that you're going to be a slave to your own brothers because Canaan wasn't the only son of Ham. He was just one of them. Canaan moved kind of the Middle East area, and he said, you're going to be a slave by your brothers. And you know what? That actually was fulfilled, that uh, Mizpah was one of, uh, one of the, the younger brothers eventually, and that's the same word for Egypt. And uh, we find that the Canaanites were taken captivity by the Egyptians. It actually happened. That was the first prophecy. The second one was Shem. Shem was the next brother, and so he gets the uh, uh, blessing. And God says this, blessed be the God of Shem. Well, why would he say that? Remember, these are guys that, that got off the ark, right? There was no other gods at that point, right? And humanity still recognized there was one God and he flooded the earth. Like in our lifetime, we were on the boat. Why would God say, blesses the God of Shem? Wasn't he there all of their gods? Well, of course, but he's foreshadowing something. Remember, Genesis was written to the, to the Israelites to remind them of their place and they were descendants of Shem and it was a reminder that their God, God was foreshadowing that the Messiah was going to come through them, that they were going to be a chosen people. A fascinating thing. Now, Noah wouldn't have known this, but I think it's cool that he adds that. And then he says this, uh, that, you know, he said, Canaan, he's going to be your slave too. So after he's a slave of his brother, he's going to be your slave too. And, and we find this exactly what happened. You know that the, the Shemites, also the Babylonians came from them and Babylon enslaved Canaan after Egypt did. And uh, something else which I think was just fascinating in my study of this is there's this phrase that says, and he will live in his tents. Now that's what it says in the Hebrew, and so different uh, Bibles will interpret that differently. And our NIV that we have, I don't think does a good job at it. It says that, it says that, uh, that, uh, that uh, Shem is going to inhabit the tents of Canaan. But I don't think that's what it's talking about. And it's because of the way that the language works. Uh, more often or, or better translation, older translations as well would say that he, pointing uh, to God, will dwell in his Shem's tents. And it's a fascinating thing and it has been discussed by rabbinical schools for centuries about what that would mean. And that's a fascinating thing. When we find out, when I was studying that, it brought to mind uh, John 1.14 where it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us and literally in greek it says and made intended amongst us and he was talking obviously he's a descendant of shem fascinating you that's neither here nor there it's just a cool thing all right so you could spend that somewhere else now we have a third son japheth japheth also gets a blessing and says you know what to your territory is going to be increased and japheth became the progenitor of all of the um, asians Europeans, uh, eventually into the Americans, the land mass, a huge portion of the earth, descendants of Japheth. That's where my um, lineage, in fact, as I was studying this, I am mostly Irish, and the Irish have a really cool thing. Uh, you can go to the National Registry, and they trace their lineage all the way back up to Shem. So if I could figure out uh, the, the link between like the 1100s and, and, uh, and uh, the 200 BC, I could figure out exactly how I'd go back up to Japheth, which is awesome. But they gets that, and then he also says this, that Canaan will also be his slave. So Canaan gets to be a slave three times, one to his brother Ham, which would be the Egyptians, one to his brother Shem, which is the Babylonians, a third time to, uh, to Japheth, which were the Persians. And it happened in that order, which is kind of cool. So God gives these blessings, and there was only one brother that didn't receive any blessings. Now, 
Ham didn't only receive curse. It was just Canaan that received curse. But Ham kind of got left out of this blessings from his father. And I think that helps explain what happens next. We see a rise of a tyrant. That's in chapters 10. And this tyrant, his name was Nimrod. Kid you not. Okay. Now, Nimrod, his name means let us revolt. Now, what parent in their right mind would name their kid that? (laughs) But they did. And it really was his heart. And, and we see that, uh, this, that Nimrod, he, uh, he descended from Cush, which was a son of Ham. And, and, you know, perhaps he had a chip on his shoulder about God, right? Like, oh, you're going to bless my brothers and you're not going to bless me or whatever. But he seems to have this, this thing where he's all about humanity and not so much about God. Now, there's some th- interesting things said about uh, Nimrod. When I was reading the text, just reading it, and before I studied it, I read wrong and I drew the wrong conclusions. It says that he's a mighty warrior. So I thought, here's this tough guy. That's a good thing. And it says that, that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it says, just like the saying is, well, of course, you all know this saying. You just say it along with me. Like a mighty hunt, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. You all know that, right? Well, anyway, and it was in there. And I thought, well, Nimrod must be like a really great guy until we did the language and the history study. And that's not at all. <laughs> We don't understand that very well. This was fascinating. Mighty warrior is the same word. The ty- it means tyrant. He was a tyrant, and then it goes to describe his, his, his nature. What did God tell Adam and Eve, to, or uh, not Adam, Noah to do? Afterwards, he says, respect me, right? Respect others, respect life, and fill the earth. This is what Nimrod does. He is a mighty hunter. Is that respecting life? We find out that the history of, of what that phrase is, mighty hunter, when applied to kings, didn't just mean that they cleared out all the wild animals around a camp so that way the people were safe, but it also meant that they hunted people and put them into captivity. Now, how do we know it was a bad way that he hunted? Because it says a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that Hebrew word before also means against. And if you read the Septuagint, which is the, Hebrew, uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, right? it, uh, it, they, they write it as it says a hunter against or in defiance of God. It shows his character. And so what is this Nimrod, this guy, he's not honoring God. He's against God. That's what the very first thing. And is he respecting other people? He's a tyrant. No. Is he respecting life? He's a hunter. No. He is in defiance. And what does God tell us to do? Prosper. Go and fill the earth and prosper. And what does Nimrod, who says, let us revolt, what does he do? Well, he builds cities. And what are cities for? To keep people together. Right? Cities don't scatter. Cities are for gathering places. In fact, under the rule of this mighty tyrant, uh, we, we see um, some interesting things. I'm going to put a map up there, and somebody show, told me that I can do uh, something. No, I can't. They said I could draw on that somehow, but I don't know how I'm going to do it, so I'm just going to point um, from my iPad. I'll figure it out next week. See that little, uh, that little dot there? That's called the, the Shinar Plain. That's out there in Syria, northern Syria. That's a picture of the Middle East. So if you've never seen the Middle East, there's a Google Earth image, image of that. And so that's where stuff is. You see like the outline of where modern-day Syria is. Iraq is next to it. And up above, you see Turkey. Okay, so Shinar means Mesopotamia, which means between two rivers. And so the idea was here that the, that they, uh, that the cities that this guy Nimrod plants are between two rivers. So they're going to be somewhere in there, and it's a plain, a flat, safe area of land that's in there. Now, they say that it's, it was east of where the ark was, because we'll find that it says that they moved east, which is over here. Now, for years, 
Um, there's Baghdad. Baghdad is at the same spot as um, where Babylon was, or very close to it. And so for years, until just the last 15 years, uh, we thought that Babylon was the same as Babel. So we kept looking for Babylon right around there, but actually they come from different words and, and things, and new uh, archaeological discoveries and, and things like this are showing us that actually um, that Babel was most likely up here in this plain. And instead of like wondering like why was it north or south, that doesn't really matter so much, but what was interesting to me was why would they start, why would they plant there in the middle of a giant plain? Why wouldn't they go to the coast, right? Most cities, uh, when people populate lands, where do we build our cities? On the water, on the coastlines, right? It's more fertile, all that kind of stuff. Water kind of runs down that way. It's going to be easier. And then um, most people always build on coasts, especially if we're going to be seafaring and want to get more land and all this. Why would they build it in the middle of this flat open plain? And then a commentator I was reading said, well, he said, well, uh, would, if you just survived the flood like 100 years before this, which is all it was, it was four generations, 100 years before that, would you build a city next to the ocean? <laughs> right? So here he builds all of these cities up around that area, and, uh, and so he builds them together, and then it tells us why they want to build this city. And so we read in, in Genesis, now we're finally in chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and it says, Now the whole world had one language, and the common speech, and the people moved eastward, that's what we talked about, they moved east, and they found the plain of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. And so they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the whole face of the earth. What did God tell them to do? Be scattered throughout the whole face of the earth. Right? Trust him. Be fruitful. All this. But they were under that tyrant. And, uh, and so he plants this city. And he says, don't just build a tower. And I always thought it was just a tower, like sticking out in the middle of nowhere. But it was a city that was, had a tower in it. And it was very important that this tower, they said, let's not use rocks. Let's use stuff that was made from man. Now, this was uh, the mid-20s B.C., and the world had one, uh, sent, uh, one language, so it was just a little over 100 years from the flood. And uh, it was a fertile ground. It could support lots of people, which was nice. Uh, but they wanted to build a city to make a monument for humanity. Why would they want to do that? What's the benefit of keeping people together? Well, and just 100 years before that, God had killed all of humanity. And so that's a big deal. And why would they want to make a tower that's so tall? That reaches to the heavens. Well, make a name for themselves. We did this. This is a monument to us. But also, how deep was the water of the flood? Well, it was, it was higher than the mountains, right? But did it reach to the heavens? You see, if you have a, a doubt that God is on your side, if you have a doubt that you can trust God, if you have a chip on your shoulder and say, this God is not about blessing us, he's about doing his own wicked, cruel things or whatever against us, the best way to, to ensure the survival of humanity against that kind of God is to build yourself a big city where everybody stays close together, where you can keep everybody close and you can build a mighty tower in the middle of it. And if the waters rise, you can rise higher. You see, Babylon uh, was, a, was an amazing city. It was meant to keep people from scattering and that's exactly what they said. We were doing this so we don't scatter. It was, it was an a insurance policy against God. And so uh, it, I think the tower pointed to man's attempt to glorify himself 
above God. To violate that very first thing, to honor him. It was a structure, a monumental lack of faith in God's promise not to flood the earth again. It was a monumental task and disobedience to his command to spread through the earth based upon their lack of faith or trust in him. Humanity revolted against God. They were acting like a Nimrod, right? That's where we were. So how does God respond? A hundred years before that, God wipes humanity off the face of the earth. I mean, he has the ability to respond with great force. What I find fascinating is that he acts totally different than I think most humans would. If, if you just gave humanity a fresh start, said, do this, love me, and in a hundred years, humanity is now 100% rallied behind a different leader in defiance of you, declaring war, a, a tower of their own trying to ensure themselves of you, I think that we certainly as people deserved judgment. But look at what it says, uh, starting in, in uh, verse 5 there. It says, but the Lord came down to see the tower that the people were building. Why did he come down? Well, was it that he was unaware of what was happening? Of course not. God knows all things. But we find different times in history when God makes an important judgment, he makes himself obvious to people. It makes it very clear that he was there. So we think of Adam and Eve. He came down and said, where are you? Of course, he knew where they were, but he calls them out so he could be there. He, uh, here, he, he makes that same type of, of judgment. When he does it in Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes down and he, he visits. Why? Because God's showing us that he doesn't make judgments out of hearsay. He is scrupulously just. And he is intimately aware of what's going on and he wants us to know that. And so God said, let us come down. And, uh, and he says, and the Lord said, as if one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And that, I think, is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. See, when I read it, before I started studying this, I thought that meant that God was intimidated by people's capacity for technology. If all speaking one language, they could do this, and nothing's impossible. Like God was somehow intimidated by us. Let's put that in context to what just happened 100 years before. Was God really intimidated by people working together? I mean, didn't people already have one language before the flood? Yeah. Was God able to wipe the earth clean at that point? Yeah. Was God worried about what we could technologically do? No. That can't be what he's talking about here. In fact, in context, he says, if one people, one language are able to accomplish this, it has nothing to do with technology. At the heart of the issue is depravity. If in a hundred years after the flood, just four generations, humanity can go from a place of knowing that God is God and worshiping him and trusting him to a place where we are now united under one ruler in defiance directly against him, trying to ensure ourselves, if we could fall that hard that fast, nothing is impossible for us. If we could become so depraved in just four generations, what would it be in eight generations or ten generations? If God could wipe the world clean of all wicked anything like that was a bad influence on us and we would fall that hard that fast, I think he's telling us our depravity really knows no bounds. And so what does God do with a depraved people like this? Well, he says, come, and this is interesting, let us, and we find again that this one God, this triune, and he's having conversation with himself just like in the garden. And so who would be with him? Obviously, the Holy Spirit who has power comes down, let us and do what? Confuse their languages so that they will not understand each other. And so that's what we find. 
I think it's a powerful thing that God's response wasn't just to destroy us. And it could have been. Really easy to destroy us. But it didn't. He comes down and he solves a problem. He says, if under one language, if it, humans fall so quickly into uh, tyrannical rule that fast, if having one language, one culture makes it that easy for humanity, it, it speeds up depravity that much, let's confuse their language. And so he goes down and that's exactly what he does. And so the language of people was, uh, was confused. And uh, what's the res- what was the result of, of this? Well, let me get to the next slide there. The result of this is it says, well, the people scattered from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That's basically, they stopped the rebellion. See, God stopped it without firing a shot. How cool is that? And this is, that's why the place is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world there. And then from there, the Lord uh, scattered them all over the face of the earth. And what was it that they were told to do in the first place? Fill the earth, be prosperous. And what does God allow people to do? Fill the earth and be prosperous. That's like the best judgment ever. See, God took our brokenness and he changed it and he did it in such an amazing way that he actually benefited humanity. Has there ever been a time in history ever since Nimrod that the world has been under one tyrant? No. See, the fact of the matter is is that the different languages and different cultures that we have that are frustrating to us that the wars that we fight against one another keep us from uniting. And when we unite, we would unite against God. We have a history of that. It keeps us from being dominated by one person. How dangerous would that be? One ideology, how dangerous would that be? Now, something fascinating about this is who confused the language? God. Do you know there's another time when we see God actually affecting language? Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes in and under the church... What was it Pentecost when the church was born? What was the sign? All of a sudden, they, the apostles were able to speak in every language. There is a time and a place where humanity will be united, but it can't be united outside of the throne of God, outside of his spirit and his grace. The Holy Spirit is amazing in this. But what we find is God did something amazing for us. And what are our takeaways then from, from this story? Well, I think the first one is this, that humanity is to pray. We're... Uh, we are not right. And I think that anybody who thinks that we are is, I've never met anybody actually who thinks we are. We, we break things, don't we? We break society, we break homes, we break promises, we break lives. We are constantly at war and we have been at war from the beginning. Why? Because we read about last week in, Bab- in, 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 in the garden that our moral compass is broken. And what we truly believe is right genuinely is not right. That we can't trust ourselves. And we have these ideas that we think this is the right thing. Nimrod, I'm sure, thought he was the the savior of humanity. I'm sure that he thought he was a great guy. We as people will call wrong right and right wrong. Scripture says that there's a way that seems right to man and the end always is death. But we have a God who wants something better than that for ourselves. We have to start with this, that people don't have the answer. If you ever thought, hey, you know what, if we could just go out and wipe out everybody who's not a Christian, right, and wipe out all the other ideologies in this world that are false and that are bad and just kind of clean off the face of the planet, all the bad people, then it would be a good world. This should uh, wake you up from that delusion, right, because we are the bad people too. The wor- people are the bad people. 
humanity can't be the solution. I used to like watching Star Trek because I thought we would have like this utopia someday. We could like, and you just have like Google Translate and it would change the language and all that and the people would all just get along. Even if we did get along, chances are we would use that power to, to um, rule over one another, unchecked. And chances are we'd use that to hurt one another. Humanity is to pray. We can't look for, in ourselves for the solution. That's a, that's a thing that we need to learn from this story. That the solution is not within us, but there is a solution. And the solution comes in God, and our God is merciful. That's the next thing you need to see on this. Our God wasn't just about wiping out people he didn't agree with. Right? Wiping out people that were just bad. That wasn't his heart. He gave humanity a second chance through the flood, and I think he showed us something amazing through it. Right? That, that just getting that refresh, that fresh start, doesn't solve the problem because the problem's in here. It's a heart problem. So what does he do in Babel? He fixes one of those things. He slows down our depravity. He gives us a break from a, a checkpoint so that way we wouldn't, as humanity, fall into that thing again. He shows mercy to us when we deserved mercy least. And that is a character trait we find in God. In fact, Scripture says while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. We serve an amazing, merciful God. The answer is not in humanity, but the answer is in a God, and he loves us a lot. And he is merciful, and he is kind, and he doesn't give us what we deserve, at least not now. But he gives us a a second chance. He gives us hope. And the third thing I think we can take away from this story is this, that God is sovereign. You're not going to thwart God. His ways aren't going to be like, it's not like humanity at some point is going to become so smart. I mean, it's like some supervillain out there that's going to put God in a box and win. That's not going to happen. So we can unite all we want to against God, but he's still God. And God's ways will still happen. God said, humanity, I want you to spread throughout this earth. That's my will. Guess what happens? Humanity spread throughout the earth. Whether or not you want to obey him or not, God's will will be carried out. The question is, are you going to choose to work with him or are you going to even against him, be thwarted and find out you're actually working within the will of God. I love God's sovereignty. It's so cool. We, he wins. And if we're on his side, then we enjoy that as well. That's amazing. So we're not going to work against God. In fact, it's futile to do so. And it, why would we want to? He's so merciful and good. What is the solution? I said the, the solution is not in humanity. Right, the solution to our brokenness, the solution to the fact that as humans we will naturally revolt against what God says. What was that solution? Well, it wasn't just killing, right? He didn't wipe us out, but it was mercy, and God changes us from the inside out. And He did that through doing something that we never deserved. He sent Himself, God the Son, came to this earth, and He lived amongst us, so he under, we knew that He understands us. And he died on a cross to pay the penalty for all of our sins. So we could be legally justified because God is just. But he does something better. Not just saving us from the consequences of our sins, but he gives us the Holy Spirit and he gives us a new life and he transforms us into his image. Now that process takes a while. But he changes the problem from the inside out. Isn't that amazing? where he begins to reset our moral compass to his. He begins to set our heart to his. He begins to take selfish people and make us selfless people. Only God can change the human from the inside. And that's the solution is in Christ. And that solution comes when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. It says that you die to yourself. And you accept this new life that he's given. Jesus said if you want to be in the kingdom, you have to be reborn. 
born again, a whole new life, a whole new way. And when you have that happen, the Holy Spirit comes and he dwells in you and he helps you. That's what he's called, the helper. This is God, the helper. And as we go through life, as we submit our lives to his will, he transforms us from the inside out, renewing of the heart, the mind, the soul. And that someday, we sang a song about this, someday we will stand face to face in a moment we will be like him. It's not going to be God's, but we will once again finally not have this battle, this depravity inside. Won't that be a great day? Isn't awesome? We have such a merciful and a sovereign God. He will make it happen. So what's the moral of this story? If you get one thing from the Tower of Babel, this is what I want you to get. This is what we should all get. Don't be a Nimrod, right? God is good and we can trust him. Nimrod got the wrong lesson from the flood. He saw how God worked and he drew the wrong conclusions. He says, God is powerful and mean and he's not going to bless me and all these things, right? We can't trust him. That was the wrong lessons. When you read scripture, it's important. You can read the same facts and come to very wrong conclusions. But if you're reading the scripture and you don't see how good God is and how much he loves you, then you're missing the point. God loves you. You can trust him. So trust him. End the rebellion. So what are some things that you can do to put this into practice? Well, fortunate for you, I've been thinking all week. And I have some ideas. It's on the back of this connection card. So if you want to pull that out, I have some ideas and, and some things that maybe you can do to be able to, to apply this, this moral in your life. And the first one, you'll see there at the very top, it says, I would like to, uh, I would like to commit to, and uh, this is what we've got to commit to. The first one is memorize Proverbs 11.2. Why? Because when pride comes, then comes disgrace. And we don't think that's how it works. We think when I've got this myself, right? When I can do this under my own power, then I'm going to be glorified. What happens when people do that? Disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Have you ever, or are you in a place in your life where you're asking God for direction and for wisdom? You're saying, God, what do you want from me in my life? What, how am I supposed to go? I will tell you this. Stop looking in yourself for the answer. Start looking to him for the answer. With humility comes wisdom. Maybe this is a passage that you need because we all find ourselves at those crossroads in life. We want to make sure that we're following the right things. And how powerful it is when God's word is, is tattooed to our very heart and our soul so we don't forget it. Maybe that's where you begin this week and that's you inside your bulletin. There's also a memory verse card and you can take that out and put it in your pocket or your wallet or your purse or back of your cell phone and remind yourself of that truth. Or maybe this week what you say is, you know, I'm going to read that passage, Genesis 9 through 11, and we're talking about. Read it yourself. All right, I gave you some context. Go and read it. It's a fascinating story. And then just keep on reading because Genesis is fun. Or maybe this week what you commit to is this. Maybe you commit to repenting. Oh, it's, I know that's a churchy and a hard word, but it's a happy word. It just means that you're making a change of direction. You're stopping living a foolish way and you're starting living a good way. There are things in your life that you know God wants you to do different. Maybe you're like the people after the flood who instead of scattering and, and being prosperous and being blessed like God wanted to, you decide to build a tower and repenting is saying, you know what? That's kind of a silly thing for me to do. Or maybe there's sin in your life. You know that God wouldn't want you to do it this way, but it just feels right. And you can justify it in your own mind. Repentance says, you know what? I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. I'm going to trust that God knows best. Maybe you need to repent and make a change. If you do that, let me know. Why? Because I'm going to pray for you because it's hard to change direction. Let me help you. And also here, maybe this one is to stop being a Nimrod. This is what I mean by that. Maybe you are in rebellion against God, not just in one area. Maybe you are distrusting of God. You know, you say, God, I, 
I really don't think you have my best effort or my best interest. Maybe it's because you've been suffering. Maybe it's because you've seen people that you love suffer. Maybe it's because you can't make sense of the brokenness in this world. I don't know. But maybe there's something in you that says, God, I can't trust you. This is an invitation for you to, to see that, you know what, God is loving and we can trust him and he is good. To stop the rebellion against him. And I say, God, you know what? I may not know you fully yet, but I'm going to give you a chance and I'm going to follow. And maybe that's what your commitment is this week, is just have that change of heart and mind and action. Say, God, I'm going to end the rebellion. I'm not going to revolt. I just want what you have for my life because we can trust that what he wants is best. Or maybe there's something else. Put it down. Why? Because I'll pray for you this week. I want to encourage you. If you have a prayer request, please write that down too. We've seen God do some really cool stuff. These last couple of years have been praying for you. It's awesome. Please write down your prayer request. We'll join you this week. We would love to support you that way. If you have another commitment, please let us know. And here in a couple of minutes, we're going to take our offering. And along with your tithes, your offerings, I would ask you to place this connection card in that offering basket uh, this week. Make these connections, these commitments to God. Before we do that, however, let's pray for our offering. Let's pray for our commitments. Um, certainly want to ask God's blessing on them. So let's do. Heavenly Father, we love you. We call you Heavenly Father because that's how you revealed yourself to us. On this Father's Day, we remember that all the best things of, of what a father is, you are uh, to the ultimate degree. That you are a provider, that you are a teacher, that, that you are a protector, and you are a God who brings us together. You give us identity. You give us safety and security. You give us love and grace and mercy and support. And Father, you don't give us just what we want. You do so much better. Lord, you give us what we need, even when we're not looking for it, out of your great love. Lord, we want to be a people that loves you back. Father, I pray, I know that I've got rebellion even in my own spirit and heart. Help me to lay that down and to to choose you. Let me have the faith to trust you even when I don't understand and to follow you. Father, knowing that you can be trusted, that you are good. Lord, these commitments that we are making today, each one of us, help us to keep those this week. We pray with you give us the help through the Holy Spirit to, to stay on track and not be discouraged and that you would make real life change in us, change us from the inside out. Help us to be a people that honors you, that honors other people, respects them, respects life, and Lord, is, is faithful to the commission you've given us. And Father, we thank you for the tithes that we're able to bring to you today that we can give back a portion just a portion of what you provide for us so faithfully. Lord, accept these gifts out of a heart of love, knowing that we are dependent upon you always. And Father, I pray over those that you would bless them and help us as the church to have a good sense, wisdom, to know how to invest those funds or to build your kingdom. Father, that you would be glorified and that your love would, would saturate this valley we live in. Lord, we pray all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.